my name is Elizabeth James Perry, and I'm enrolled with the Aquina Wampanoag Tribe on Martha's Vineyard, Nope. Um, Cha Wanikisak, uh, that's greetings and good day in my language. And I'm here to share some of our wampum traditions. Thank you, Elizabeth. And this is the Curating Indigeneity podcast with our generous sponsors and our Patreon sponsors who are supporting this today. Your $1 counts and goes a long way, and also to the gracious support of First American Art. I'm Tony Atonharjo Growing Thunder, and I am your host, and I want to say thank you to Elizabeth Perry, James Perry. Um, she's a good friend, close friend. We've been friends for over 20 years, and um, not to date us, date ourselves, and count the rings on us, but um, we have been very close throughout the years, and wanted to dis- discuss this, but not only that, um, share on a project in which we've been working on together, where I rely on Elizabeth quite often for her tutelage and advice, but also to learn from her and to have good laughs and hopefully travel memories with one another. And so thank you today for joining us, Elizabeth. And um, you want to tell us a little bit about your art? Sure. Thank you, Tony. Um, yeah, so I'm a traditional wampum, uh, wampum artist, and I what that means is we harvest the quahog shells. It's a bivalve, thick, heavy clam. They live to be really old, um, so they're very substantial. And I open the shells, clean them, sort them um, by color and size, cut out my beads, drill them, and then use them for a variety of things, including to weave into belts and cuffs and um, traditional alliance collars. Great. And can you tell us about some of the supplies and method and how you create the art? Yes. Um, so let's see. So there's a lot of different directions I could move in. Um, so one of the ways that you uh, would make beads is that you snap out, um, you can score the shell and snap out the bead blanks um, and then do your drilling with a pump drill, which is a traditional, you know, um, no electricity drill. You just do the drilling by hand. Um, You can also do it without the pump. You could just use the shaft with a drill bit that was typically made from shark's tooth or stone um, to drill a hole. Um, And you would just move it yourself. we also use uh, sandstone or crushed sand in stone and water to shape the beads. You can channel the stone so that you have a chance to, be to shape them. And so they're all a fairly uniform size after a while. And this is all done with a lot of water to keep the dust down, but also to keep from completely wearing out your tools. And it's the same nowadays if artists, including myself, um, are using modern tools. We use a lot of water both to protect our lungs and to um, take care of the shell, but also to, you know, keep our our tools from just being immediately worn out because the shell is really hard. Okay. I also um, string the the beads on traditional fiber. So in addition to my shell work, I also have gardens where I grow um, milkweed in several species, common milkweed and swamp milkweed um, and welding world-leaf milkweed, and I grow butterfly weed. And um, 
some of the things that wampum was traditionally and continues to be traditionally strung on uh, include in my territory, in Wampanoag territory, in coastal Massachusetts, we used a lot of butterfly weed. It's, um, it's in the milkweed family, so if you break off the leaf, it's got that white milky sap. Um, but you're not using the leaf. You're usually drying the plant completely, oftentimes in the autumn when the leaves have come off, and you peel the fibers and then process the fibers into a nice and strong cordage. And so butterfly weed is um, a plant that likes our nice coastal sandy soils. Um, it also likes natural fires, which unfortunately get suppressed now, so it's not as common a plant as it used to be, so I grow it here. And um, dogbane is another material that's also in the milkweed family. Um, and dogbane species, dogbane species vary. It's also called Indian hemp, and so there are particular species in different parts of the range of dogbane, which is pretty large. And if you... Um, you know, know where something was made, you could figure out which species of dog bean was used, or alternatively, if you had some fibers that an artist saved that you could look at under a scope, then you can figure out, as long as you have a good enough sample um, and big enough, you can also figure out the species of dog bean that way after the fact. Oh, wow. Well, that's a lot of work, and you do reside in the Martha's Vineyard area or on the mainland? Is that? So my community is on Martha's Vineyard and my um, residence right now is in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. And mm. so it's pretty close as far as um, looking out across the water. I can see mm -hmm. the cliffs from the beach in Dartmouth at Horstick Beach. Mm. But um, actually to take the ferry, unless I'm taking the fast ferry, which is local, there's a big long drive, and then a ferry ride, and then more drive to get to the cliffs. So, yeah, our mode of transportation these days is probably much less efficient than my ancestors. Yes, yes, many of us <laughs> are, are like that. <laughs> so, when you're talking about the milkweed, now, when I lived in New England, we would see these vine-like weeds that were along the side of the road. Is that in the same family that... They're quite thick. Um, is that what I right. was seeing, or they, is that not? Yeah. So milkweed, it's an upright plant. Mm -hmm. um, milkweed is mostly the long, straight, thick stem, mm -hmm. um, and then it has the. It can have wide or narrow leaves, and the distinguishing feature is if you snap off a leaf and there's that white. It's almost like latex. Mm -hmm. That's a milkweed. That's where the name comes from. But it has those pods with the um, little fuzzy fibers attached to the seed that mm. come out in the autumn. And most people who've grown up in New England enjoy opening the pods and blowing the seeds all around because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> that is. Um, dogbane, so the milkweeds, upright milkweeds are like that. Uh, swamp milkweed does have some branches. Dogbane or Indian hemp has can have a bunch of branches and a, a finer leaf and a white flower. Milkweeds have several different, regular milkweeds have several different flowers, like um, they could be kind of lavender to pink, to like a, almost a candy pink, to there's some species that have white. Butterfly weed is really pretty. Um, it has a finer leaf again. Um, it can be branched. It takes some years to sort of mature into a bigger plant. They start out small, and they have a beautiful, almost tropical orange, fine, 
milkweed-type flower. It's very, very pretty. Um, and they're all good for butterfly gardens, too, for that reason. Mm. Um, but they're all pretty strong. I guess I would say about the upright milkweed, the common milkweed and swamp milkweed, the fibers are kind of um, luxuriously soft. So they were used preferentially for weaving bags and, like, weaving, like, a cape top that was really kind of silken and very comfortable and attractive as well. Um, so the, that particular type of milkweed was preferred for kind of elegant garments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. And since you know so much about um, the landscape and how you include that into your art and the contemporary context of where you are as an artist and as a modern Wampanoag woman, um, can you share with us your background of education and how how that sinks into your art? Sure. Um, the way that my educational background relates, I think, is has to do with um, where I grew up and who I'm descended from. And so I grew up in Massachusetts, right on the coast, by the ocean, always at the beach, always um, surrounded by by folks who are very coastal and, and still, you know, fishing and cohogging and all traditionally. And um, I'm also descended from whaling captains and first mates and harpooners from the 19th century and 18th century, and, of course, harvesting the traditional way, for the most part before then, um, of various species of whales. And so I, you know, grew up surrounded by ocean and ocean lore, and I decided when I grew up to study marine biology because I thought the resources are so important to protect and I wanted to learn as much as possible. And so it was a way to do something that I loved and it was a way to do something that kept me very much tied to the coast and um, on the water. So I clocked a lot of hours um, inshore and offshore doing research projects, various kinds, and also did a lot of marine science illustration. Um, and so it, it ties in in that I think when I'm doing my traditional art, which I didn't go to college for, there's no, um, you know, Northeastern Native Tribal College for traditional <laughs> art. I would have loved that, too. Not yet. I would have gotten a dual degree if <laughs> that was possible. Yeah, not yet. Right. That's our next goal, making a tribal college yeah, so, <laughs> in the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, so my knowledge... My knowledge of my art came from my family as well, my extended family, too. So my cousins also contributed. Nana Pashmet, Tony Pollard, actually shared a lot. Um, and then I have other um, Native community members and then researcher friends and all as well that were great resources um, for me and really always encouraged me to um, pursue doing things um, the traditional way even though it takes longer and um, takes a lot of discipline and things like that. Everybody was really generous with their knowledge. And um, it took me a while because it's a pretty exacting discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I enjoy, I know how valuable it is to, from a cultural perspective, but then from a scientific perspective, I also know how valuable and precious it is because um, it's, you know, it's 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 living and it's sensitive 
and it's reactive to changes in the environment, and it's reactive to um, things that we put in the ocean that might make the ocean environment, unfortunately, less hospitable for all of the things that we depend so much on, and that my ancestors have been fortunate to be able to harvest for tens of thousands of years, but that they knew, as I know, that you can't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's great. I I appreciate you sharing that with us because that's so very important, and I think that's really um, where you and I come in on this project with one another, that you're so generous, just like your relatives and ancestors, to teach and to share the knowledge, but not only that, as myself as a plains and woodlands person who relocated to the area, um, just the generosity and what it was to be included, not only in the culture, but in the arts and to the sustainability as a people, because um, even just being there in that short time that provided to me and our children and uh, our family members probably the best diet and most likely the most significant part of our educations, even though we did go to college there. Um, but specifically knowing the indigenous knowledge and what was taught and passed on and given to us in a good way um, through our, our customs of sharing with one another. And so that means so much to me that you explain that. And that's really why we wanted to have this conversation today for our listeners is because we, um, Elizabeth and I have been working on um, illustrations and some essays about talking about wampum art and specifically uh, myself as a curator of needing to create new narratives as modern people and being the younger generation, Elizabeth and I, uh, collaborating on this work. Um, For my sense that I am a curator and be able to bring new research and new documentation for my colleagues who may be non-native or uh, on the lesser educated about the topic, but not only that, relying on our relationships and our cultural uh, communities and our, our manner to call on our friends and relatives and say, can we talk about this or we're a new generation and are we stepping forward to talk about this and make it something available because we're getting into the scope of being parents and grandparents and it's our manner to teach just as we've been taught. So um, do you want to talk about how we think we're going to add difference or how we're going to be the change or do you want me to share? Do you? What do you think, Elizabeth? Um, yeah, I think, do you want to start by talking about how um, this particular belt or, or many belts are labeled and talk about the labeling on this particular belt and what I think of it? Or yeah. I'm pretty open to whatever okay. approach. Okay, well, for myself, um, as a curator, I came to this subject because I was talking about authenticity laws under Indian Arts and Crafts Act, but not only that, the Endangered Species Act. And Elizabeth being a shell artist, I often sought her opinions about the restrictions in the endangered species laws and learned quite a bit that 
even the articles that we wear on our everyday garment and um, embellishment as Indian people are things that are protected and things that we probably shouldn't even be using if we read the law the way that they want it to be <laughs> depicted. But, um, you know, as Native people and Indigenous First Americans, uh, that do we continue and be protected under spirituality laws or do we follow the authenticity or do we follow the species act and that's really how I became interested in learning about wampum but then the more and more I dug into the conversation with other scholars who were non-native was that oh this is wampum this is Haudenosaunee this came from upstate New York and that's it the conversation always stopped and I thought to myself there's no way that these could be where they're saying that they came from. But not only that, um, the collections were having information that were coming from the collectors who might not have been Native, who acquired the objects and just assumed that they came from one area or one region of the United States, but not understanding the geographical difference when you actually are knowledgeable about where the shells come from, where the milkweed comes from, where it grows, the organic, and how it's hand-woven versus loom-woven. And learning more and more about the pieces, I became concerned uh, that there was not too much published works out there, cited works, that were actually detailing the artifacts of where we thought um, it should be <laughs> as... Um, as scholars, but not only that, as Indian people. And so I I asked Elizabeth that she would be able to help me and guide me on this because um, under academic excellence, <laughs> I didn't want to be wrong, but how could I be in a field that all the research was just totally wrong? How And uh, how dare I question <laughs> my peers, but also to stand in complete confidence as who we are as a, a Kiowa Seminole Creek person leaning on one of my best friends who is Wampanoag and who I've always known <laughs> to be as completely confident as I to help in this kind of um, task in in this field that really needed to have new research evidence so here we are, and um, we we are coming across a belt in general that um, I believe possibly involved a lot of lore. Um, I don't want to use the word romanticized, but there may have been differing tales or um, details of how the piece came into the collection, but... Um, Specifically, we are going to talk about the Lopoenza piece, which came from a Lenape leader, and how it came into a museum collection, and how Elizabeth and I probably think that we would like to research more of the object and provide more details to it. Elizabeth? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a great introduction. Um, so I, I can address a couple of those things. Um, the Endangered Species Act is 
is really important, and uh, I, I kind of see it from both sides. And um, I think we as Native people, we have, I don't think we called it the Endangered Species Act, but we always had these ways of respecting our resources and rotating our harvests and only taking, I think, the, the essential lesson of Native traditions probably anywhere in North America is only take what you need. Do not waste. Um, and so we, we didn't have to get to the point of having an Endangered Species Act because we, our work was always preventative. But here we are sort of caught up in this other society and other society's way of doing things that are different from our own traditional cultures. And so, um, so you know, we, we sort of, we have our traditional knowledge, traditional environmental knowledge, and then we have alongside of it scientific monitoring, and we have tribes that are, are doing that with species of concern and all, too. So, so now we're using both. Um, and it's a balancing act, and, you know, if, if you're inheriting things that are old and are really rare, they're, they're that much more precious. Um, but it's not just the materials, but it's the, um, it's the connection to other beings in, in your particular region, whether you're Wampanoag from Massachusetts or Eastern Rhode Island or you're, you know, Kiowa um, living out in Oklahoma. Um, the the land and the resources, the, the birds and the fish, and in our society, the whales were really important and are really important, but they're much more rare. Um, and so our ability to access is very limited, but we can still see them and we still appreciate them and we still value them. So there there's still a connection there. And we have all of the stories of our grandfathers and great grandfathers and grandmothers as well. Um, to, to kind of fill that out for us, too, and, and fill out what that connection um, means when you do have access to the resource. I think we're really, um, as one of people, we're very dependent on the ocean, and we're, we're glad that we still do have rich fisheries. Um, in New England, the, the Bedford area is one of the richest fisheries in the world, um, and we still do have quahogs, but of course, there's a huge population here now, and so um, there's a lot more harvesting pressure on the species. And for me as an artist and as a traditional Native person, I know that also translates to mean that the quahogs don't get to live a really long life on average like they used to. And so where my ancestors had something the size of like a lunch dinner plate just about to work with sometimes, a really huge thick shell with a lot of raw material that you could cut up, you know, use really carefully and not waste. Mm -hmm. um, I have a much smaller, on average, my cogs are, are quite a bit smaller, and if I get a big one, it's pretty valuable, and it's the kind of piece that I don't necessarily carve it right away. I have to kind of hold on to the shell for a while and really think carefully about what I want to do with it, how I want to shape it, or do I want to make beads, how do I want to make those beads, and um, what do I want to use them on, because that's special too. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we have this scarcity awareness <laughs> built in, I think, to our work, too, as we work with the shell, to um, to really appreciate that, that we can still be here doing this. And, you know, we weren't moved off our traditional territory or um, in some way otherwise limited from the ocean. So we're, we're pretty fortunate in a lot of ways. I think in terms of the stories with the belts, yeah, so here's the funny thing. is If, if you look at the belts and you think about the story, of how these belts came into existence. 
you have different materials from the ocean and you have materials from the land being incorporated in, um, you know, ocean marine life and you have land mammal life in terms of some of the deer skin that's used. Um, I know in stringing up in addition to the plant life that we use, like the butterfly weed that I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and, um, dogbane and milkweed and we use slippery elm too sometimes in Massachusetts and Rhode Island especially. Mm -hmm. um, we also used sinew but it's not necessarily um, the short pieces of deer sinew because you know you have to weave this long belt and you don't want a bunch of different materials that maybe have different kind of stretchiness that are going to you know behave differently over time. You get the nice long pieces from an elk, um, from elk intestines so it's got sinew, it's, it's easier to process, you have nice long fibers, and so that's one of your preferential materials. So you're drawing together all these things, and each of those things have their own lives and their own place in our society. And you're also thinking about what it is you're making. You know, you're making this belt. And what is this belt? Is this belt commemorating an agreement between two nations? Is this belt um, commemorating ceremony times? Uh, is this built to have protective, wholesome symbols for, let's say, my grandchild to wear as they travel um, because maybe they're leaving my community and, and going into to a community to the west like Stockbridge or um, going to a place like Pennsylvania, which at the time had some communities that had come out of western Massachusetts and eastern New York, um, for example, connected to the Moravians who were being driven out because of political pressure and intrigue and things like that and, and went south. And so there are a lot of different reasons and ways that Wampanoag people ended up moving in various directions. Sometimes they were campaigning in wars and some of them got taken as captives by Iroquois people or they got taken as captives by Nanticoke people and then, um, you know, it took them some time to to get ransomed back or to escape. And they came home and they told those stories, and some of those are in places like the Mass Archives, and some of those are pre preserved among their descendants and community, too. And so there's the belts, the materials, the human element of the people. We know our nation was moving all around all the time, not in entirety, but large numbers of Native people had to move during, during King Philip's War. It wasn't really an option. You know, it was a war. So to be safe, many people moved up to central Massachusetts. Some people went to um, New York, to Mohican Territory. Some people went way north, north um, northern Vermont and into Canada. Um, and other people went a little bit south as well. And so it kind of varied. And then some of those people came back and, you know, went back to life as usual, as best they could, um, and some people didn't, And but people stay in touch, as they tend to anywhere, and so as time progressed, you know you have relatives here, you know you have relatives that went there, you know, I know as a whaling descendant, I've got cousins in New Zealand, um, mm -hmm. and that's not an uncommon story, so we literally are, bump and I people are all over the world now, I get, you know, emails from distant relatives from the Marquesas Islands saying, hey, I'm a descendant of such and such. Do you have information about you, the Wampanoag whaler? And so we start sharing stories, too. And so some of those stories aren't necessarily as immediately accessible um, 
to a person who may not be a Wampanoag person, mm-hmm. may not know naming conventions or community names or events that carried other people into certain territory. They just might see a, one of those territory maps is very bland, and it just says the, the Native nation in that area, but you don't get a sense of who also was coming in to trade or who got caught up in war, whatever. Um, so there's a lot more digging that has to happen, and then the other side of it when you're doing research, because history was the way it was, oftentimes the people who got most written about most were the people who were um, political leaders, diplomats, um, prominent traders, but not necessarily average, everyday people um, and their stories, which are equally important to me. But I think also that um, sometimes in museum collections, there has been a tendency to name pieces after the local sachem. You know, I know in my neck of the woods, a lot of things surprisingly belong to King Philip, and I'm not sure that he knew about that in mm-hmm. his lifetime. Yes. He might speckle now, um, made a comment. Uh, and so I think it's just maybe a reflexive tendency to um, associate things only with this or that station or this or that song squad, but um, to not, you know, think about ordinary people as being important that is holding wampum. Um, not think about other contexts and also sometimes not think about the history, which is, is pretty hard. I mean, wampum, um, unfortunately, a lot of it was taken out of Native hands through illegal fining of Native people in New England. Um, it was stolen, so you were at risk when you were traveling wearing wampum. Um, if people were wanted to rob you or rob you at gunpoint or shoot you and take your wampum, that may happen. Um, I know in places like Pennsylvania, when tensions got high between uh, the white settlers and Native communities, that sometimes they went in and raided Native communities and rounded up the people, burned down the cabins, but they know actually in their records, before we burnt those cabins down, we checked everyone for wampum. And so it almost is creepy because the wampum seems to really get a lot of care and attention. And, um, you know, as a Native person, you don't really want to ask what happened to the Native people, but the end of the story is usually a pretty pretty gruesome, comprehensive. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really it's not pleasant. Um, so some of the wampum that have come into these collections also come out of those stories of hardship and loss. It's not glamorous. It isn't just the suffering of one tribe. Many tribes went through those kinds of colonial-era difficulties and challenges because that was life at that time. Um, And I think our people did the best that they could to handle that. And um, because wampum was important, they continued to make it, and they continued to wear it on their person because it's wholesome and it's protective. And, you know, when it's made by family or community, it's, it's special, especially as you travel. Um, you're not going to leave that at home. <laughs> you're going to take that with you. Even during the war, uh, you can pick out all of these accounts of Native people who are running, uh, you know, for their lives sometimes, but they were running in a wampum belt or wampum collars or gauntlet cuffs or all of the above. Um, and 
heavy material. It's substantial, but it meant so much to them that it wasn't going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the importance of the belts and sashes and, and so forth, and can you kind of help debunk or, um, I don't know if that's even the right word, describe how modern societies tried to identify wampum as um, a monetary source or as currency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that a lot, actually. Oh, that was in money, um, mm-hmm. which isn't like, yeah, yeah. appropriate. So culturally, for us as Wampanoag people, um, we harvest and have harvested that shell, and there are massive shell middens all over the coast. Um, you know, when people are doing construction, they still find them. They're, you know, there was a huge one that was recently kind of mapped out. Um, on Cape Cod with national parks, national seashores recently. Um, so that that is a source of life for us. Cocogs are a major source of sustenance, and that is not something to be overlooked in native diet. Mm-hmm. Um, something that sustains you is extremely important. The fact that we live by the coast and we consider the ocean the source of so much life is makes the shell that much more wholesome it's coming up out of that ocean water which is a lot like our blood in terms of its composition salty composition and so you have these shells they're a significant color combination of the purple and the white and the symbology that that we read into that um there's dark and light symbology and those, that contrast allows us to use that artistically to communicate. You know, it's a, it's a method of communication. It's communication that's considered to have a high level of integrity and wholesomeness because it comes from the ocean, because of the way it's processed, because of who makes the wampum. Um, oftentimes women, but men as well as women, uh, making wampum and weaving wampum specifically. Um, it was important enough that it was used to record history and sometimes very, very ancient history like creation stories and early times and times of change like the glaciation and things like that. Um, It's been made for a really long time here. It occurs in in really ancient sites, archaic sites, thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. You can still find wampum. Um, I don't know what the, the maximum date is and I don't know in New England soils, which are fairly acidic and that obviously um, are affected by frost heat and things like that, how long the shell would last in small bead form, um, even if it was carefully wrapped. I think over time, just the pressure of the soil buildup and, and everything else um, would just grind the shells back down into be part of the sand and part of the soil again. And so the oldest stuff, like many things that are old, you may not find. Um, but it's, it's a medium that is hard to make. It's a hard shell. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of work and time and patience to make beads. Um, and so it's valued, but it's valued culturally as a method of communication of, um, this material that's used in ceremony, including, on marriage ceremonies and things like that, and in 
standards and announcements and, and traditional sort of, I guess you would say maybe a flag or a banner um, that sort of, that you would have on display in hoops when you're playing a ceremonial ball game or something like that. Um, and so it, it was exchange, certainly, but it's not strictly the abstract, this bead is a coin to Native people. There's a lot more, you know, it's important to have on you. It's good for you. You should wear it. It wasn't just leaders that were wearing it. Um, even children were wearing some wampum in our society. And so it's this intricately woven part of your life that um, also was used diplomatically and by ambassadors and leaders and runners and messengers um, to convey messages, whether they were string or belt forms. You know, messages were encapsulated in alliance colors and those exchanges. And um, that exchange probably looked a lot like money to European background people at the time period because they're seeing an exchange, and that's probably mostly what they're initially reading into it. And so they target it, definitely. They learn to ransom people to get belts or get, you know, big containers of wampum beads. But that's not um, that's not really a traditional use for, for Native people. And I think as Europeans were trying to fit into the economy here, because we had value for wampum, made wampum, and they could use wampum, and we would allow that to happen, then they were also using wampum at some point fairly early on, um, the Dutch first and the English um, afterwards, because I think the English were reticent to change their material culture ways, but they didn't have access to silver and gold, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it became this, it became used as a currency among other things, but it was never just a currency to us. Yes, yeah, and we see that quite often that they they want to say, well, this was this monetary amount or this is what that meant, and so I wanted you to explain that to us because I, I don't ever know how to say it the way I'm supposed to other than no, it's not. <laughs> no, that wasn't a dime, no. <laughs> that that was not a thousand dollars worth. I'm sorry, um, <laughs> but um, so one of the other projects that you and I were working on was wanting to research and look into the Ralph T. Coe belt that now resides in the British Museum collection, and you and I had talked many hours about this piece, and. I think both of us were drawn to not only the beauty of it and the part of the organic matter which were we were able to detail where it came from exactly, which was from your home community. And Ralph T. Coe, um, and we know him as Ted, was a dear family friend also who was at the Nelson Atkins Museum as the curator. And he had started some research and never really finished the research and that was really the interest of where you and I had come in was wanting to pick up where Ted had left off because he knew that the artifact that he had purchased was indeed labeled a Haudenosaunee belt but he always had in the back of his mind that he wanted to make this right and to correct it that it was a Wampanoag belt 
and you were able to explain the the three square designs that were on there and was that um that was in reference to uh the houses or the fires kind of like the three fires ceremony or is that different <laughs> yeah it's Are you there? Can you hear it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm sorry. There's a strange noise. Okay. Sorry. Ancestors were, um, were, ancestors were calling in. <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. So, so the Tedco um, belt bike, that is a really large, really beautiful piece. And I think it's also very old. I think one thing that happens in collections is to be safe. Um, the first thing that seems to happen is that everybody gives it a date uh, that is maybe 100 years before the date that they bought it or something, um, which isn't really accurate, and it doesn't capture our traditions or the longevity of our traditions and continuity and things like that. Um, so I think that that actually is quite a bit older than, than is known um, mm-hmm. currently. It's it's pretty large and it's designed in such a way there's sort of like a, an additional row that's just a partial row in the center and it's very much designed to wrap around the body almost like a really substantial shell shawl um, for, at a special time to, um, and it had to do with when you see squares sometimes like that, um, sometimes they are fires or houses um, having to do with connections and agreements and relationships between nations or communities. Um, in this case, I think um, it was communities within a nation, and um, I think including the Boston area and Martha's Vineyard and Montauk. Um, it's very, very nicely made, and it's in excellent condition, so it was obviously extremely well cared for by however many hands have, uh, have kept it, mm-hmm. and I think we're fortunate to be able to see it now. Yes, and I, I think that maybe it's um, the way it should be that Ted had the knowledge to hold on to the piece and to want to research it, but possibly it wasn't his work to be done. And we don't know if it's our work to be done, or um, but we do acknowledge that it it is something that is very significant to our people and to our communities and what struck me the most was knowing the scientific background and the biological matter of the purple the deep purple that is on the belt was one thing that really seemed to outline and to pinpoint its location um specifically coming from that part of the ocean and knowing that those colors were coming from that space. And getting back to the Lopoenza piece, when I had talked to you, I said, it almost looks like a um, a triangle and a, a thunderbird is what I see. And you said, that's what I think it is too. <laughs> and um, I, ha- I, know no, I have no idea. Um, I, I shouldn't admit to that, but I, I didn't really know. I was just looking at what I think how it spoke to me um, and what I saw in the negative space, in the negative color space versus the 
the outlining design, and I don't know if that's correct or not, but can you share a little bit more about the design on the Lopoenza belt? Sure, um, certainly. So the the belt um, is comprised of a, a belt that's been woven on deerskin, or what I assume is deerskin. Mm -hmm. um, the fringes were probably a little bit longer. The knots at one end... Um, Sometimes in the 19th century or whatever, curators would knot the ends thinking that it was just going to save the beads from falling off, but it doesn't really have anything to do with that. It's mm -hmm. not how you stabilize a belt, but it was done anyway. And so um, it has those knots, and then the background is purple, all purple cohog shell, and the design is in white, and the white can be either the white cohog shell or whelk or conch, mm -hmm. which is a spiral nail that gets really good sized and so it could be one or the other or it could be a combination of those um, you really usually have to take a really good look at the shell to see if it's got the striations like a cohog or if it's got more so the markings and the coloration of a, of a whelk shell which can still be pretty pale almost white too so it's close um, and it's got a nice um, it's been woven with sinew in a way that it's really going to flex, but it's not going to stretch and stay stretched and pressed. Mm -hmm. um, so there, the beads have stayed close together, and that, that belt isn't new. Um, and so that belt has been made in such a way that I think from the 18th century on, it's, it's stayed in really good shape, mm -hmm. um, which is... These pieces are were made by people who had a very long view um, that made things in such a way that these are heirloom pieces, so you wear this belt, and if you, you know, as you get older or something happens or you want to honor somebody, you can gift that, and then that belt continues to have a life, and that person might gift that again, and it continues to have a life. And, you know, if there are stories or specific meetings or specific events that it has to do with, sometimes those stories are really personal, and sometimes they're more sort of broader politically um, relevant, wider known symbology as well. So you could have both. Um, the the diamond thunderbird sort of combo. So the diamond is the the woven design. The, the thunderbird sort of indication is is kind of just the what you can read into the negative spaces between the diamonds. But I think the repeating diamonds are um, they they run the length of the piece. And it seems like, to me, a very protective design, um, something wholesome that you would give a younger person to wear on their person for such situations as I was talking about where, you know, you're traveling, um, going to new places, experiencing different things, and maybe even experiencing hardships. And so there, there's a lot about wampum being really wholesome and good to wear and... Um, there are both belts with dark backgrounds like this one, and then there are, are white backgrounds, and those also had to do with um, winter time and lighter times of year. So literally, if it's a white background, in our society, at least in Wampanoag society, it can have the connotation that it, if it's an event, then it has more to do with the time of the year when there's you know significant amounts of sunlight, as opposed to winter, we use a, a deep, deep, deep purple background sometimes um, connotates those winter days that are so short where um, there's actually less sun than there is duck time. 
And so those are also significant times for storytelling and um, for wampum weaving mm-hmm. and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you for discussing that. And it's not always easy talking about designs and uh, color significance of palettes and so forth. And I thank you for sharing that with us today. But not only that, sharing everything about your art and who you are and your tribe. And um, it it really means a lot that we're able to document this, not only in a conversation, but in our projects. Because um, we're very fortunate to have our peers and colleagues in the field to ask us to include our input. And I am really thankful that you're on this path with me because um, I couldn't do it otherwise. And I don't want to be a bullwinkle and try to know it all (laughs) because I don't. Mm -hmm. But I also like to um, learn as much as I can because these are mediums that we can't find where I come from. We don't have... um, we don't have water anywhere around us. Uh, we're pretty dusty out here in the southwest part of Oklahoma. But, um, you know, learning about and they were all trade items that come to us. We get the pink conch and sometimes the white shell and sometimes the abalone. But, you know, those were by trade or by union um, agencies and so forth that we wouldn't otherwise have it. And so... I really do appreciate you sharing all of this uh, on the podcast and uh, with each other in text. And I want to encourage others to dive into the research a little bit more and to write more about it and share and study. And if you get a chance, look at Elizabeth's website. Can you share that? Um, Certainly. It's ElizabethJamesPerry.com. Original Wampum Art is the name of the site. Okay. Original Wampum Art is her site, and she is an artist. Um, uh, uh, You are a full-time artist now, correct? Yes, I am. You are. And we can see you at some upcoming shows, um, possibly in New York, or where else? Mm -hmm. New York, New York NMAI, um, sometimes at our traditional powwow in September on Martha's Vineyard. Um, let's see. Yeah, those are the ones that come to mind because I'm on the, I can't think of others, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, and hopefully we get to see you at the Herd Market or, um, maybe the Autry. I think Autry would be fun to go to. I have never been. Yeah, actually, I was thinking Idlejorg as well. But yeah, I'll I'll figure out which. Okay, and if not, go to her website. She has some beautiful works there, and I had the honor of wearing a couple of her pieces to the IAIA Gala this year in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, all kinds of compliments about it. And we are hopefully going to have a, a trip to Germany where we are discussing our research, and um, I think one of my parts of what I want to do for this museum is to have one of your pieces included in their collection. And so I will most likely acquire a piece in order to gift to the uh, German museum in which we've been working. And they've been very uh, helpful and they've been very receptive to our research and listening to us and 
uh, respecting who we are as Native scholars and academics and including our our voice. And it, it could have been easy for them to not include us, but um, on this project we are, are, I believe, on a right path and that's what curating indigeneity is all about on this podcast. And so we will wrap it up today. And again, we want to encourage the patrons and those following us on Patreon that your dollar goes a long way. And to also follow us on social media at Curating Indigeneity or hashtag Curating Indigeneity. And feel free to reach out to us, like, subcri- subscribe, share. Um, and hook up and link with us somehow so you can join us on more conversations like this. But thank you very much, Elizabeth, and we'll go ahead and uh, end it here. Thank you very much. What do we say? Is katapatash? Is that how you say it? Katapatash. I Uh, I said it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I said it wrong. (laughs) I tried. But thank you. Uh